back when I was in youth group, we used to play this game called Buck Buck. Now, for some of you guys who've been around the church for a while and been around youth ministry, you know what I'm talking about. And you also know why we're not allowed to play that game here at Bayview anymore. For those of you guys who don't know, I'll explain. Essentially, you take everyone and you split them into two teams. You have one team that's on defense, one team that's on offense. And the defensive team, they line up, they lean over, and you hug the person in front of you really, really tightly. All right, so you kind of picture this line of about 10, 15 people hugging themselves really, really tightly and making this really long line, defensive line. Now the offense team, they go line up about maybe 10 meters away and you send student after student and one student will go, they'll run, jump, and try and land on this line and hug, hug the line and hold on for dear life. And so you send student after student after student after six foot, 200 pound leader, and they just keep landing on top of this line. So you start making this kind of pile on top of the line. And obviously the goal is to get as many students as you can on that line that's playing defense um, before it collapses. And so you can imagine now why we are not allowed to play that here at Baby Youth. And so back, when, back in the day, we'd always play. And, and for some reason, whenever this line collapses, it was always the smallest person that ended up at the bottom of the line. Now, this never happened as, as far as I remember, but imagine this line collapses and you have about 20 kids on the ground and one of the kids doesn't get up. Imagine this kid just actually got knocked out cold and it was just was there. If, if I was the youth leader at the time, I would have been looking at him and been like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Well, you, you, you get the kid and eventually they'll wake up and you get him to the hospital you get them in front of a doctor, and then you start looking up jobs and Indeed because you're going to get fired. <laughs> but now imagine this student is there and explaining the situation, um, let them know what game we were playing, and, and they start listing off, you know, I'm feeling nauseous, my head's dizzy, I have a headache. Right before this, I actually threw up. If, again, if I'm the leader, I'm sitting there, I'm like, what am I going to tell this mom or dad? But then what if the doctor looks at the student and says, oh, well, uh, I can give you some gravel for your, your stomach and maybe that'll help. If I was a leader, I'd be like, what, what are you doing? Clearly the issue here is not their upside stomach. Yes, they threw up. The issue is that they have a concussion. We, see, a bad doctor would give them gravel, give them some water and send them on their way, but a good doctor would realize this is just one of the symptoms of all the things and look at all the symptoms and realize there's a bigger problem at hand and then diagnose them correctly, right? That's what a good doctor would do is they would realize the symptoms are pointing towards the real problem. So one of the big problems that we have as Christians is we can get caught up in the symptoms. We get caught up in, in how bad they are and how painful they may be to the point that we actually forget the core problem. We forget the, the reason, the disease. We get so caught up in all these symptoms that we you just miss the true thing that's going underlying all of this. And so as we look at this passage that we're going to be going through today, and it's a lot, um, we're going to be unpacking this concept of sin. Now the dictionary, the dictionary defines sin as an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. But sin is so much more than that, right? If we boil it down to just this 
reductionist view of sin that says that sin is limited to just improper behavior, we, we miss out on so much and we misread verses like this to the point that we actually start to do harm to the passage and harm to other people around us more than the good that it was actually supposed to, to do. I brought a little item here to help us out. Do you know what this is? It's a fireplace poker. All right, you use it uh, when you have a fire going on in your house or maybe when you're outside in your backyard. And you use it to kind of stoke the fire, to move some logs around, get some oxygen going. But I was talking to Lucas and some people this week about TV shows and how anytime I've seen a device like this, or maybe a baseball bat or a tire iron, very rarely do I see it used as a fireplace poker. It is so often used as a thing to hit people over the top of the head. I was watching a show and this was, this was the weapon that they used to, to do harm to someone else. And so often we'll see it like that to the point that when I see a fireplace poker, I think of it as a weapon. And that happens so often with the verses like what we're going to read today. We've started to look at these verses as weapons. So much to the point that we actually get scared of them. We get scared of verses like this because it's been used so often as a weapon to the point that you either have two reactions. You see it and you pick it up and you start to do harm to people or you are so scared of it that you ignore it because you know how much it hurts people. And so when Lucas asked me to to preach on this passage, I wasn't overly thrilled because the last time I looked at this was years ago when I was in university and I read it and, and I saw, oh man, I got to start talking about sin. How do you do that? How do you start telling people about their sin? And so I had those same preconceived notions and, and fears, but church, please hear me out. Paul did not intend for these verses to be used as a weapon. Paul did not intend for these verses to be used as a weapon to attack people, to whack people in the back of the head. So right now I want to release you of any preconceived notions that you may have, any fears, anything you, any responsibility you feel the Christian may have over sin. You can put those down, put down that weapon and understand that the true heart behind the text is that it's not a weapon, that it's not meant to to do harm to people. But really what this passage wants us to do is to recognize the real problem. So recognize the real problem. And my ask is that as you go through this with me and as we go through these words, that you put down your agenda, put down any preconceived notions and resist this temptation to take modern cultural ideologies and put them over this ancient text. Let's, let's listen and see what Paul is trying to say, what the heart is behind this passage. Let's put it this way. Paul is going to argue that sin is a symptom of our misplaced worship. That's our big point today, that sin is a symptom of our misplaced worship. See, sin is a symptom of a true disease Right? And, that, and that disease is that we've misplaced our worship. And symptoms, like I said, can hurt. Sins can hurt. And they can look gross, and we may want to deal with them. But we can't forget 
that there is a true problem that we need to address, which is our misplaced worship. And so let's read. And we are in Romans chapter one, starting in verse 24. And so we start here. Therefore, well, hold on. All right. Whenever we see therefore, what do we ask? What is it? Therefore. And so in order for us to get into our passage right now, we actually have to go back a couple of verses. And, and last week, Sawyer preached a great sermon um, regarding uh, worship. And, and so that is our main point as we read these verses, is we're talking about worship. Verse 22 picks up saying, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so we've misplaced our worship. See, we understand that mankind is going to worship no matter what. Whether you realize it or not, we've chosen to worship something. We've chosen to reorient our lives around something else. And a lot of times it's the things of this world. And so Paul's explaining that we've chosen to exchange God for the things of this world. And that helps us as we get into our passage now. So therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and, and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Woo. We got a lot of stuff to tackle. We're only two verses in. Are you excited? Uh, I'm pretty excited. All right, let's go. Um, so right here, we see that, again, we ha- right before this, we had this great exchange that happens. And so for that reason, therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. And Paul's just reiterating in verses 24 and 25 what he's already said in 22 and 23, that there's an exchange. And and here we've exchanged God for a lie. We have misplaced our worship. And and so in the same way that that student who had a concussion was was nauseous and, and they had a headache, Paul's going to give us a list of symptoms that we need to use to point us back to our main problem, our main disease. And so let me put it another way. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. Isn't it true that as we start to worship things, as we start to orient our lives around other things, we start to become like them, right? And the things that we are becoming or have become um, are already pointing back internally to our ordered worship. Jesus would say it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so man has chosen to worship something else besides God. And so how does God respond? Well, God gave them up. And that, that one's tough, right? Like when I, when I read that, I'm like, ooh, I, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about a God that gives us up. Right? I thought God was supposed to be loving and I thought he was supposed to rescue us out of darkness. Right? I don't want to hear about a God that, that gives us up. Like, what do, what do I do with that? Well, hold on, let's, let's look back. Let's look back. And, and last week, we unpacked this, this concept of God's wrath. And we learned that it's not this hot, fiery, angry wrath that we may commonly associate 
or think that it is, but it's actually this perfect, settled, and controlled kind of wrath. And, and so when God gives us up or when he lets us up, he's giving us up to our sin that we've already chosen. We've already chosen to enter into that into, into those things and into that sin. And so God is just letting us choose the things we've already chosen. See, God's wrath is us experiencing the natural consequences of our sin. It's us experiencing the natural consequences of our sin. Um, I heard the story of a, of a mom and her son and how they would always argue over what to eat. See, the kid, all he wanted to do was eat McDonald's. All he wanted to do was eat McDonald's and obviously being a good mom, she wanted him to eat healthy. And so this was a point of contention. They would always argue over this and every meal was, no, I don't want salad. I want McDonald's. I want McDonald's. They would argue and argue and argue to the point that the mom said, you know what? Fine. You want McDonald's? That's all you're going to get. That is all you're going to get. And so for a month, all this kid, kid ate was McDonald's. Every single day for a month, all he ate, all he ate was McDonald's. And, and so the mom actually allowed this kid to have what he wanted. He, she gave him up to his, his desires, right? And, and I know that sounds gross, and it might be a decision. I, I don't know if I, it's a decision I would make. But guess who doesn't eat McDonald's anymore? See, in the same way that, that this mom gave her son up to, to what he really wanted and, and he kept fighting for, God does the same. See, God le- is letting us experience the consequences of our disordered worship. It's, it's something that we've chosen. It's on us, right? As us as humans, we have human choice and we have human responsibility. And so God actually just lets us enter into something that we have already chosen. I love how Sawyer put it last week. And he, he talked about how we are gods in our own skull-sized world, right? We've kind of decided that we are going to make all of the choices for ourselves, that we know what's best. And, and from the very beginning of mankind, that's what we've done. That's what we've done. We have chosen to worship the things of this world and we've exchanged God for the things of the world and for the, what we think is right. Doug Moo says, uh, says it this way, that we are being given up to the sin we are already immersed in and despite our knowledge of God, we have chosen sin over God. And, and Paul actually affirms this in, in Ephesians. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, 19, it says this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've been callous. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so if we go back to our analogy of of symptoms, God allows us to sit in our sin in the same way that a human might sit in their symptoms. Um, Some of you guys might not know this, but I have eczema. All right. It's not very obvious, but it's pretty bad. Right. There are times when it gets pretty bad. Actually, a few years ago, when I first started working at Bayview, um, I had a really, really bad flare up. 
And for those of you, for those of you who don't know what eczema is, it's kind of um, your, your skin gets really, really irritated and you start to flare up and you're really, really itchy. And so a couple years it got really, really bad to the point that it looked, I looked very, very different. Uh, my skin was super dry. Um, I was like, I had marks all over my arms. My neck was like really irritated. Um, I actually had no eyebrows. I kind of looked like this. I just walked around looking like this. I didn't have eyebrows. Like I looked very different and it started to mess with me. I, I couldn't sleep. I was always waking up like randomly in the middle of the night. Um, I was super irritated. I was super self-conscious about the way I looked. It was no joke. And what made matters worse is that I tried to fix it myself. No, I tried to be my own doctor. I went on WebMD and I looked up YouTube videos and I tried to do all these things to mask the symptoms and maybe exfoliate or, or to deal with certain areas, certain things. But it wasn't until I truly humbled myself, till I really looked at it and said, you know what, I can't do this. I went to the doctor and they ran some tests, gave me some medication and, and, and now I'm better. And, and for those of you guys who know about eczema, you know that this analogy kind of breaks down because there's no actual cure for eczema just yet. But the idea is that until I was fully in my symptoms and I fully, it was so bad that I couldn't handle it anymore is when we were able to actually get a cure to our problem and start to move towards a solution. God gives us up to our sins, not because he's abandoned us, not because he's done with us, but because he wants us to experience the full entirety of our symptoms to the point where we realize we can't cure ourselves, that we can't do it on our, on our own. And, and, and Paul's going to start listing off these symptoms. And, and, and these are those verses. When I was talking about verses being used as a weapon, these are those verses. And so let's read about some of those symptoms that, that God gives us up to. Verse 26, for this reason, God give them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And, and so these are those verses, the ones that we want to start wielding as a weapon and we can start taking our ideologies and our, our own um, cultural context and start wanting to put it over these verses. But it's so important that we look at it from the mindset of a first century Christian in the Roman church. And, and we're going to have to bridge some historical and, and, and cultural and, and um, big time gaps in order to do that. But this is so mission critical that we lean into it and it's going to take some time, but we need to lean into it because one, we need to hear what Paul is truly saying and two, resist that urge to use it as a weapon, to start pointing the finger. And so we need to know a couple things. So first, Paul would affirm and, and we would affirm that the practice of homosexuality runs contrary to the biblical design for marriage. It runs outside of how God planned marriage. Paul affirms that here in, in, in saying that he identifies it as a symptom of our misplaced worship. But at the same time, Paul wants you to know and, and we want you to know that no matter what, you are extraordinarily loved by God. See, I think 
Um, as Christians, it's so often that we're known for what we're against, but very rarely known for what we are for. So let me say it again. God loves you. The God of the Bible, the God that we read about and we worship, the Jesus that we follow, he loves you. He loves you. The second thing I want you to know, and it's something really interesting as, as I was reading through the passage and, and reading books and, and, and commentary, um, I learned that the idea and the concept of homosexuality looked very different uh, in the Roman first century church compared to what it looks like today. See, today it's an identity. It's, it's a part, it's a big part of who you are. It is who you are, right? Someone would identify themselves as as gay, I am gay, I'm lesbian, I'm pansexual. But that would have looked very different, and, or homosexuality looked very different back in the first century. Context back in Roman culture. So you remember, um, in Rome, there was a high Gentile population and, and culture, and, and mainly the Greek culture was a huge influence there. And, and a part of the Greek culture was for older men, older, wealthier men, to take sexual advantage of their servants, and, and often that was young women, um, but there was a pervasive problem where it was older men taking advantage, sexual advantage of younger men. And um, these older men, they were, they were consumed with sexual, sexual sin, sexual pas- passion, and, and oftentimes this is, this is used as a case as to, well, homosexuality is okay as long as you're just not uh, abusing younger men, right? We just don't abuse younger men, but that's not the case here. That's not the point that Paul is trying to make here, right? Paul would still condemn sexual homosexual relations, and and it's clearly here because he first off he addresses women. He says women um, having unnatural relations with um, other women, but then he also says this. He says that these men were consumed consumed with passion for one. Another. So it wasn't a, a, a imbalance of hierarchy. It wasn't just older men um, abusing, sexually abusing these younger men, but it was that they were had a mutual uh, passion for one another. And so again, Paul would still condemn this. So why? But then why? Why does Paul mention any of this? Why does Paul start off with this sin? Well, for the early Christian church. Um, for that community, their expression of sexuality and their understanding of sexuality would have actually been a lot different than the people around them, right? For the larger Roman culture, their, the, their understanding of sexuality would have been a lot different. And so very few, if any, of the people in, in the Rome, first century Roman church, um, very few of them would have actually been dealing with this, right? It would have been something that was on their mind or, or something that they were um, again, dealing with, and Paul would have known that. Paul would have known this. He would have known that it wasn't a thing for them. And so he knows that it'd be, it'd be kind of like if um, in, in the modern day, we look around and we say, yeah, the world is so bad. The world, the world is so bad. And we have a problem with, with crack cocaine. And, and most of us, in the, if not all of us in, in the modern church, we know that that's not necessarily a problem um, for the average congregant or the average person in the church, right? And so it's easy for us to, to start pointing the finger and say, well, I don't, I don't struggle with that, that sin. And so you start to feel good. You start to get a little bit, a little bit self-righteous. 
right? Um, and we start to think, well, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay because that's not something I deal with. And that's the same thing that Paul is doing here. Paul is trying to stir up that same emotion. The first century church would have been doing the exact same thing. Well, saying that that's not a sin that I, I deal with. Yeah, those people out there, they would have got, got up on their soapbox and, and got on their high horse and started to point fingers. And they would have started using this stuff, as, uh, the, these verses, as a weapon. But that's not what Paul's intention was. He does not want to use these verses as a weapon. And he, and he shows that clearly in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And so we're going to have to jump ahead, but it, it clears up this point so well. In verse 1, he says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same thing. He's saying you, right? Lucas is going is to talk about this passage um, next week, but see how he goes, he flips from they language to you. He, he goes from saying they, 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 and he flips it on them and he says, no, you. See, he's gotten them to start pointing their fingers. He's gotten them to, to get up on their, their soapbox and, and, and to start condemning and shaming people and, and start Instagram accounts where you start guilting people if for whatever sin that they have. But what he actually wants to say is, no, it, it, it's you. It's you. Right? We, it's so easy for us to start putting a wedge in between us and them. But it's not to give the church a weapon to attack. That's not what these verses are for. But instead, it's actually to, to address the real problem. The real problem behind sin. That it's, it's not a, a them problem. It's not even an us problem. It's an everyone problem. See, because again, sin is not the problem. It's a symptom of the disease. It's a symptom of our misplaced worship. And so just in case you, like the early church, might look at this first symptom and, and say, great, well, I'm not sick. Um, I don't have that symptom. Well, Paul, Paul's not going to let us down here. So as we keep reading, Paul's going to give us a litany of other symptoms. Picking up in verse 29, he says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, there we see it again, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Love that. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, these are all biblical notions, right? When he starts listing off all these sins, they are sins, and, and chances are one of these sins applies to you, right? And, and we do need to stop doing these, thin, these things. We're not, we're not supposed to just brush over them and, and say, well, okay, well, we're, we're saved. I would be mistaken to not realize that Paul has actually a warning for the church. But again, we can't get caught up 
in trying to deal with only the symptoms. We can't get caught up in, in trying to just manage, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do these things. Um, I heard it said once that we miss the forest when we just look at the trees, right? We can miss so much when we're focused on one thing. We forget the bigger problem that's at hand. We miss the forest when we're so focused on the trees. And the forest here is our misplaced worship. We've said it before, but we can get so caught up in the symptoms that we forget the real problem. And what's funny is I've done youth talks on nice things like, like prayer. I, at one time, I did a talk on the seven things you need to know before you start dating, right? I've done a lot of, a lot of fun ones, right? Ones with hope. Then I look at a passage like this and, and I thought, well, perfect. Now I got to tell everyone that they're sinners, right? I got to go and I got to go start waving my weapon around. But the more I read this, the more I understand the heart of Paul, and, and as we really dive into scripture, you start to understand that that was not his intention. That was not what he wrote and, and, and was hoping behind any of these words, right? What he wanted to do was combat self-righteousness, to tell the people that were pointing fingers to stop because we're just doing more harm than good. And in the same way that Jesus would combat self-righteousness, He's saying very clearly to the church that, yes, these are all these sins. These are all these things that you need to stop doing, but we need to get back to the core issue at hand. We need to get back to the real problem that it's our misplaced worship. We have taken um, other things and put them at the top of our mantle. We've started to put our lives and start to reorient our lives around other things. And we need to stop. We need to stop and we need to get back. See, sin is not the ultimate problem, right? We've talked about that. Sin is not the ultimate problem. And it's too cheap of a gospel to think that, that Jesus only came down so that we would stop sinning and to save us from our sins. The gospel is so much more than that. And we know that sin is, sin is no joke, but it's not the problem. And, and so if, if you're reading this and you're listening to this and, and you're saying, well, yeah, that's me. I, I have uh, homosexual relations. I, um, uh, I'm a gossip. Or, or for my baby youth people out there, I'm disobedient to my parents, right? If that's you raising your hand and you understand that, you know, those are, those are some of my things. Then Paul is here to, uh, he wants us to address these symptoms and look at the core problem and showing us that these sins are a result of misplaced worship. That these things are actually not the real problem, but it's because we've misplaced our worship. And so let's end with this. I have three things that I would like us to do as a church. First off, stop weaponizing a fire poker. Stop weaponizing the fire poker. Place down your weapon. And I know it's hard because I know so often all we think about when we see passages like this is that they are a weapon. But place down your fire poker, fireplace poker. It is not a weapon. And so we need to stop using it as a weapon. We need to stop doing harm. 
And because we've done so much harm with passages like this, we actually need to start doing some wound care. See, there are so many people, again, that have been hurt by the, by the church and by Christians, right? A lot of people in a part of the LGBTQ um, community have been hurt by passages like this that have been used as weapons. And so if, if, that, if that's you, on behalf of, of, if I can speak on behalf of the church, I'm, I'm sorry. Again, please know that you are, are loved, that you are welcomed here, that you are accepted here at Bayview Glen Church. But church, we, we have a lot of work to do. There have been a lot of years of doing a lot of damage. And so we need to start doing some wound care. We need to start reaching out to those that we have hurt and letting them know that they are loved and they are accepted. And finally, and this is, this is for all of us, we need to finally address the disease. See, sin, sin is messy, it's tough, and we know that we can get caught up in it. But we need to go back to the core. We need to let these sins and these symptoms point us back to what is actually the problem. What is the core of our problem? It's that we've misplaced worship. We've started to orient our lives around things that don't last. We've tried to find identity and purpose in things that we truly cannot find identity and purpose in. And so let's put God back at the center of our lives and ask ourselves, what are we truly worshiping?